Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Our last episode was part one of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman with Strictures on Political and Moral Subjects by Mary Wollstonecraft, published in 1792. Today, I'm welcoming back my brilliant reading partner and dear friend, Megan Cahoon Alder, and we'll jump right back into the book. Our first topic is education. So Megan, can you start us off? Yeah. Yeah. This is one that really stands out for me, uh, her vision for the education of women. You know, she kind of begins by saying women are not the inferior sex. And then she's like, okay, maybe physically, but not intellectually. Mm -hmm. You know, they haven't been given a chance to prove themselves otherwise. So women aren't inferior by nature, but by consequence of miseducation. And so I really appreciate that. Um, You know, and she goes on to say that women have been relegated to the realm, again, to the realm of sensibility or emotion, which tends to be kind of frivolous and shallow, and then they're mocked or scorned for it. And yet, you know, she kind of argues, like, what do we expect of them if that's the only education they're receiving? We cannot expect more from them if this is all they're given. So I just kind of hear her saying, cut some you know, cut women some slack, stop mocking them since it's society's fault that they're quote unquote like this. Um, yeah, she also argues for women to be educated so that they aren't left destitute. If a man decides he no longer wants to take care of her or if he dies. So she says, girls who have been thus weakly educated are often cruelly left by their parents without provision. And of course, are dependent on not only the reason, but the bounty of their brothers. In this equivocal, humiliating situation, a docile female will remain some time with a tolerable degree of comfort. But when the brother marries, a probable circumstance, from being considered as the mistress of the family, she is viewed with averted looks as an intruder, an unnecessary burden on the benevolence of the master of the house and his new partner. So basically, she not only has to be dependent on the kindness of her brother or other family members that might take pity on her, but she's just not equipped in the slightest to deal with what life has dealt her. And this message to women that their role in life is to be wife and then a mother definitely was the message that my mom was given growing up. She dropped out of college after one semester when my dad proposed, and she got married and had my sister pretty quickly. And then three years later, there she was, 23, divorced with a toddler and one on the way, that was me, uh, with no education, no real job training. And, you know, this was the early mid-70s during second wave feminism, so it wasn't like there was no counter-messaging happening in the greater world you know, out there, (laughs) but getting an education or training so you can support yourself, you you know, that, that message was happening, but in her world, in the Mormon world, there seemed to be a doubling down on a woman's place. And one that, because she had great faith in the Mormon church, she believed wholeheartedly. And there's always this tension between growing up with a single working mom and the idealized version of what a family was supposed to look like in the Mormon church. And and this is hammered pretty hard in the Mormon church. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it looks like this. It's the father at the head, mother at the hearth, and children kneeling at their feet. And it's definitely not how I grew up. (laughs) Um, 
and, you know, with my single working mom. And then I would go visit my dad twice a year um, when I lived in California and he was in Utah. And I would see it play out that way, you know, kind of the the way it's supposed to be, quote unquote, with my dad and stepmom and siblings. And it was mostly confusing and painful for me. And it, you know, it really wasn't that I wanted my parents to be married and thought that would make everything better for us. All I'd known was my life with my mom, but it was more that my siblings had what appeared to be financial stability that we didn't have. And I know now as an adult that my dad and stepmom really scrimped and took extra jobs to meet all their financial obligations. And it was a challenge for them. But as a kid, it was not lost on me that my dad had an education, a better paying job and way more income than my mom. It was really a struggle for my mom. And, you know, because of her experience as a young bride with no education and then finding herself as a single mother, I grew up with the message that a college education is not an option. Um, Not necessarily because I'm worth being educated, like we were talking about before, but it was always with this caveat. It was, what if something happens to your husband? You'll be left alone and struggling. And so that was kind of the end, you know, the end Mm. of that sentence. You need to get a college education because what if something happens to your husband? And so she Uh really didn't want that for me. I didn't want that for myself at all. Um, Uh But that in case something happens to your husband was totally lost on me. I was going to go to college because I had a vision for what I wanted for myself. I wanted a career. I wanted to help people. And uh, I really had to grow into those other parts of myself as wife and mother. I did not see myself in those roles at all. Hmm. That's so interesting. Good for you for knowing better, first of all. (laughs) It's really hard to do. I think it's really rare to be able to see something different from what we're taught. Um, And it's awesome that your mom, you know, promoted your education. Oh, yeah. um, Even if it was with that caveat also, which I also heard always, I mean, in every like, um, youth, teenage girls group lesson. Mm-hmm. I feel like we were encouraged to get an education and always it had the end of the sentence, just like you said, was in case something happens to your husband, mm-hmm. always. Mm-hmm. So actually, and one other thing I thought of as you were talking um, about, especially the beginning of your mom's story when she um, found herself Uh, divorced and with two young children um, and how in the 1970s, the women's lib movement or the second wave of feminism was happening, but that she experienced kind of the church's pushback against it. Is that, did I understand that correctly? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I, so Lindsay, my daughter just wrote a paper on that in college. Um, She interviewed a bunch of Mormon women about their experience with the second wave of feminism in the 1970s and um, just to determine like what their response was to it, how it impacted them or how it didn't. And most of the women she interviewed who are now like in their 60s and 70s didn't even know that it was happening. Mm -hmm. Like they had no knowledge of it. Mm -hmm. Like they were under a big force field bubble or something. Like they didn't even know that it was happening. And then those who were aware of it expressed just what you said, that um, they were just, you know, getting the message through the church that the women's movement was dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so they dug in even harder on that ideology of like the separate spheres and female self-sacrifice and and the woman's place being the home. So, yeah. 
Oh man, that is so fascinating. I would I would love to read Lindsay's paper. So give it's her my paper. yeah, give her my contact info. I would really love to read that. <laughs> I've talked okay. to my mom about this period of time in her life, and definitely feminism was like the dirty four-letter word. You know, so mm-hmm. yeah, it was going on out there, but definitely she was not soaking that up in her daily life in, in any meaningful way that would impact her choices. Um mm-hmm. and yeah, so I really think, you know, Wollstonecraft's view is pretty out there for the time. And and I think for a lot of women in the 70s, you know, just as we're talking about that, it's pretty out there, right? Educate women because they will make better wives, mothers, and citizens. Um, You know, and here she kind of takes a turn and starts talking about how motherhood, um, a very natural thing, and just this unnatural preoccupation with being beautiful and admired, get pitted against each other when education is so limited. And she says, when a woman is admired for her beauty, she suffers herself to be so far intoxicated by the admiration she receives as to neglect to discharge the indispensable duty of a mother. Men are not aware of the misery they cause and the vicious weakness they cherish by only inciting women to render themselves pleasing. They do not consider that they thus make natural and artificial duties clash. So she makes several of these arguments of the natural predisposition for women to become mothers. And she even argues in several places that women who do not breastfeed are neglecting their natural bond and failing in a, a very severe way. I, mm. I believe she's mindful of placing the woman in context of the patriarchy and acknowledging that the expectation is going to be pretty low when women aren't taught to be thinking more philosophically or rationally, that they're just going to tend towards the silly and the frivolous. And, you know, kind of this preoccupation with being admired. And that's going to make them neglect their duties as a mother. But she does get pretty judgy <laughs> about motherhood mm-hmm. and and breastfeeding. Um, this It does sting in some ways, just knowing that motherhood is not available to everyone who wants it. It sometimes doesn't happen to those, or it sometimes does happen to those who aren't ready for it yet. And for others still, they will thoughtfully make the choice to not have children. And, you know, there's just such a huge spectrum of a woman's experience when it comes to motherhood. That's just so complicated, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And in Mary's world, it just seems like a foregone conclusion that women will become mothers and then breastfeeding yeah. as well. So much pain for those for whom it doesn't work or the judgment that's passed for those that choose not to. I, I do think one thing for sure, you know, when we take the time to know the person there really is usually a good reason for the choice that they have made. And if there isn't, it still isn't really our place to judge. So let's try and support each other with wherever we are. Totally. I'm so glad you said that because it it sadly does feel familiar to me that, you know, a woman kind of judging another woman mm-hmm. for her choices mm-hmm. in motherhood and breastfeeding, which as I think about it now, as I just said that, um, in Wollstonecraft, I mean, well, we're all um, susceptible to doing things like that. It's not our the you know the better part of our human nature right. to judge each other. But right. here she is making these totally scandalous decisions in her reproductive life, and then you know judging others. But sad to say, I think most of us do that at some point. Um, mm-hmm. But so I love you bringing out how important it is to first of all not um, not assume that all women are mothers right? right i mean right we hear those 
those things conflated all the time and and I need to be careful um, not to do that. And then, as you said, it's just so important to show compassion and to support each other and to, you know, have empathy and give the benefit of the doubt for other women and their choices. So thanks yeah. for bringing that out. Yeah, there, there are a lot of places where she's pretty harsh to women who are preoccupied with beauty and, uh, yes. you know, the vain things of the world, quote unquote. And I, I have to admit, you know, we're talking about being judgy. I was pretty judgy like her about, you know, the girly, girly stuff. Um, yeah. This started when Me I was, too. Really, yeah, you know, you just had talked about your experience in college. Um, mine, I just, this started when I was really young and lasted until, you know, after we got back from Chile. I definitely, really? yeah, it really did. It lasted so long. <laughs> Um, I did not know that about you. Yeah. Well, I mean, we met on the mission, right? And I had to look like right. a girl. I had to wear a dress yeah. every day. Yeah. And one of the things that anybody who knew me before I went on a mission would say, how are you going to do that? You literally have to wear a dress or a skirt every day, all day long. You're kidding. How are I you going to do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how funny. Yeah, yeah. I never knew that, Megan. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it really, you know, I had this chip on my shoulder when it came to femininity and things that were considered shallow and flashy and, and mm -hmm. really what was deemed or seemed to me designed just to get a man's attention. And I mm -hmm. wanted to be taken seriously, you know, just like you were saying in college, I wanted to be taken seriously for my ideas, for what I brought to the table intellectually. I did not want to be noticed for what I was wearing or what I looked like. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's what Mary's trying to say here is that a woman, when a woman is told that her only way of being valued is through her attractiveness or her sexuality, then it stands to reason these parts of her self, you know, will be focused on and developed. Now, mm -hmm. is there anything wrong with liking to look attractive and feeling sexual? Absolutely not. And also they are not the only parts of us that exist and not the only parts of us that have value. For me, you know, I really had to grow into those parts of myself because of that rejection of them meant that I was playing by my own rules, you know, when in reality, I was still playing by the patriarchy's rules just in a slightly different way. I downplay those parts of myself to achieve a different goal, you know, denigrate what I saw as the obvious rules of the patriarchy, women be sexy so you can get a man, please him and be fulfilled by his attention. No, instead, I think I was really playing by the equally insidious rules of the patriarchy that equate femininity with inferiority. So my internal monologue was, if you want to be successful, downplay anything feminine, do not dress to be noticed, reject the idea that it's your role to be a wife and a mother. Now I can see the patriarchal system that was not obvious to me before, and I can be harsh on the system and soft on the person within the system. Yeah, wow. That line is... is so important. And yeah, that's such an interesting insight about, you know, that you thought that you were kind of subverting the patriarchy and being a rebel, <laughs> right. but really you were just kind of playing along with it, but just, you know, from a different angle. And I, I can relate to that. I do think that's what I was doing too. I was, you know, in college when I was um, kind of dissociating from those parts of myself that I kind of determined were weak, mm -hmm. that I was just denigrating mm -hmm. what the patriarchy had determined was feminine. Right. And so I was just playing into the narrative too, that the feminine was inferior. 
Um, and that that reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Wollstonecraft. Um, so I just want to throw it in here really quick. She says, quote, taught from infancy that beauty is woman's scepter, the mind shapes itself to the body and roaming around its gilded cage only seeks to adorn its prison. Men have various employments and pursuits within which engage their attention and give character to the opening mind. But women, confined to one, and having their thoughts constantly directed to the most insignificant part of themselves, seldom extend their views. Mm. Wow. So there's so many good, yeah. I mean, you could just kind of break up that quote into really powerful sound bites. But um, one part that kept coming back to me was the mind shapes itself to the body and roaming around its gilded cage only seeks to adorn its prison. Mm. I think we do have to be mindful of this issue. And later in the podcast series, we'll be covering the book, The Beauty Myth by Naomi Wolf. And that talks about how this very same phenomenon is still plaguing women in the 20th and 21st centuries. Absolutely. Um, right? I yeah. mean, it hasn't gone away. No. This, this issue in um, A Vindication of the Rights of Women felt so like current to me, mm -hmm. like it wasn't. It, like she could have written it now because, you know, we see women still spending inordinate amounts of time and thought and money on what she calls adornment. And in some cases, it truly is because women are in kind of a mental prison and they're wasting their, you know, their one wild and precious life on really trivial, ephemeral things and worrying about how they're perceived every waking moment of their lives. And I think social media, honestly, is only making that worse. Mm. But we won't go on that tangent because yeah. we could talk about that for a long time. But mm. um, but it's tricky, right? It's so complicated because on the other hand, like you and I just both talked about, it's not healthy either to pretend we don't care how we look at all or to reject any interest in our appearance because we associate that with weakness or femininity. So it's super complicated. Yeah, and actually, okay, I, I have to sh uh, share one more thing on this. So in our house, we have a quote on the wall from Little Women, and it's where Marmy says, if you feel your value lies in being merely decorative, I fear that someday you might find yourself believing that's all you really are. Time erodes all such beauty, but what it cannot diminish is the wonderful workings of your mind, your humor, your kindness, and your moral courage. These are the things I cherish so in you. Mm, I love that quote. And I do too. I love that quote too. It's Marmy talking to all her daughters, mm -hmm. and I love that quote, and I really believe in it, but... Apparently, I have been doing too good of a job <laughs> inculcating that message to my daughters that adornment is not a worthy way to spend our time and attention. Mm. Because recently, my teenage daughter Sophie came to me and she said, she was so nice as she said this. I have to make sure I represent her correctly because mm -hmm. she was just so... Um, sensitive to my feelings and she used I statements. She was so such a great communicator. So but great. she said, Mom, sometimes, yeah, she did a great job. So it made the message easy to hear. Um, but anyway, she said, Mom, sometimes I feel worried that you're judging me because 
I care about clothes and makeup more than you do. Mm. She said something like that. And Sophie is an artist and she loves doing makeup. She's very visual. She loves doing hair. She loves doing like historical hairstyles and experimenting with clothes and especially like historical fashion. And there's nothing wrong with that. And so when she told me that and and said, I I feel like I'm worried that maybe you're disappointed in me Mm -hmm. because you think that this is frivolous and, um, I'm so grateful she told me that so I could apologize for making her feel that way and so that I could do some course correction as a parent because I want her to feel free to be herself. Um, And I had no idea that, I don't know, based on just my example and maybe because of the quote on the wall, (laughs) I don't know that she was kind of feeling, she was feeling judged. So yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the first thing that really pops out to me, Amy, is, you know, the fact that she was able to come to you and express her worry or fears. Does that speak volumes about the safety and trust you created with her? That kind of honesty can feel so very risky. And yet she trusted that you would handle her fears gently, right? And allowed you the opportunity Mm -hmm. to offer reassurance that really is so beautiful. And as a side note, our our youngest sounds very similar to Sophie. And so both John and I have to be very mindful that we honor those parts of her that, you know, we don't fully get on an experiential level, but are so important to her. Mm. So it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's complicated. It's complicated. That is interesting because knowing you and John and who you are as parents too, it makes me wonder if maybe our girls, well, I mean, they could be responding perhaps to what they see in the culture, but I actually don't know that our girls are experiencing what you and I experienced growing up, right? Right. I think, I mean, I I remember when I heard the phrase, for example, um, girls are praised for how they look, boys are praised for what they do. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, that's true. That was so true as I was growing up, like in the 80s and 90s. And once that was pointed out to me, I really started noticing how true, actually how true that still is. I observed so many women around me who I I feel sad because I feel like they do derive their value maybe uh, somewhat disproportionately from their looks and how they dress. Mm -hmm. But my girls have grown up in a totally different environment. And I know yours have too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in our families. And so maybe when our girls are experimenting with hairstyles and makeup and clothes, they're doing that just because that's a normal way, you know, to experiment with expressing yourself as you're growing up, right? Mm -hmm. That's a healthy part of growing up. Right. And even though you or I, I know we would never say anything you know, negative about their clothes or their makeup. I don't know. They, at least in Sophie's case, she might, again, just be kind of noticing like, oh, I'm a little bit different from my mom in that way. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. that's what she's noticing. So I just want to be careful that, I guess what I'm trying to say is I want to be careful that I don't project my own issues because oh. I do have some issues from <laughs> right. the environment that I <laughs> was raised in, in that issue. But maybe, I don't think Sophie does, to be honest. Right. I think she's just... Being a teenager and an artist who loves to experiment with that. So I don't want to project my stuff onto her. Yeah. Um, But that's tricky. Oh, my goodness. It's so tricky. I just, as you were talking, I I found out more about myself 
you know, and those kinds of what are my issues, right? Am I projecting all my garbage onto my kids? You know, I've, I've found <laughs> out more about myself through having kids than I ever did by being in therapy yeah. or even being in, a, you know, being a therapist. And so it just mm-hmm. requires you to understand yourself pretty well to be a therapist. But somehow our kids hold up mirrors for us to see all of these rough edges that we have and all the things that maybe we didn't see before. <laughs> Once we see all that and kind of how it plays out and our kids, it just takes a lot of work to not put our stuff onto them. And, you know, and I, I think we're all like a work in progress and it is a delicate balance and, and feels like we kind of have to walk through fire sometimes to find that balance. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I, I really appreciate sure. that story because yeah, I can see it in, in my kids too. It's just important to honor it, you know, uh, deep sigh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> deep sigh. That's right. I guess it's just important. I mean, that's why these conversations are so important. Yeah. Right. To just keep digging and trying to understand it more so that we can make deliberate and thoughtful choices. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And, it's and a process. really, yeah. And when our kids can say stuff like that to us and we can take it and, and try to make sense of it and really give them what they're needing in that moment, which is to know, are we still attached even though we're different? Right. That's what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. Sophie kind of ask for, you know, are, yeah. are we still okay? Even right. though I'm not like you. Yes. Right. Of course. Of course you are. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So thanks, Dr. Alder. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that, I'm being serious. <laughs> um. So let's see. Women's role in God. This was the next um, theme that really stuck out to me. Um, I won't get into everything. Obviously, we don't have enough time for that. All the things that mm-hmm. I was thinking about with this. Um, but there's a few. So Rousseau's whole premise, we're going to go back to him for just a second. Um, his whole premise that women are created you know, by God for man and that man tries to obtain her consent that he is the strongest. That's one of his quotes. She labeled mm-hmm. all of this as nonsense. You know, she literally said, this is nonsense. Um, You know, and you quoted some of his delightful ideas about the purpose of women. And she directly responds to him with really bold declarations. And this one spoke to me in particular. And she says, she says, and though the cry of irreligion or even atheism be raised against me, I will simply declare that were an angel from heaven to tell me that Moses's beautiful poetical cosmogony and the account of the fall of man were literally true. I could not believe what my reason told me was derogatory to the character of the supreme being. And having no fear of the devil before mine eyes, I venture to call this suggestion of reason instead of resting my weakness on the broad shoulders of the first seducer of my frail sex. End quote. This is a radical stance then. And, you know, it would probably be a radical stance to many now. But I appreciate so much that she is separating her own experience, you know, not what anybody else is saying, it should be her experience with God, but her own experience of God and taking God out of that very small box and saying, this does not resonate with me and what I understand of God. Her reasoning is telling her that this is not the character of God to create women to be inferior, right? And and therefore she's saying, I'm going to reject this. 
that God wouldn't create women solely as pleasers of men, that goes against God's character. And I really, that resonated a lot with me. I appreciated that mm-hmm. a lot. Yep. Yeah. Um, so bold. That she, it is. Sorry. And for her to give herself permission to say that. Yeah. And even though it's in the scripture and even though it's in, you know, it's just commonly held belief oh, and yeah. it's sacredly held Sacred. belief. And for her to say, right. nope, I reject that and I have a right to reject that. That's it's right. It's just it, gutsy. It is so gutsy and I and I love her for it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the benevolent patriarchy screams its way throughout this whole chapter when she's quoting her contemporaries, all those mm-hmm. quotes we read at the beginning. Um, and, and some of them were not even so benevolent, right? But how they attempt mm-hmm. to keep women subordinate by telling them how marvelous they are, right? That they need to be cared for, that they're innocent, that they're like children, and they need to be safeguarded and protected by using flattery and compliments. And she says, quote, this is not the language of the heart, nor will it ever reach it, though the ear may be tickled, unquote. <laughs> I love it. I do, because she's like, okay, so it might feel good for a little bit to be put up on that pedestal. It might make you feel cared for and valued and important, but she calls it out as a farce and nonsense, you know, and she bores into the heart of the matter by saying, do away with all of that flattery and pretending. Allow women to fully come into themselves and know all the different parts of themselves, not just the parts they're told they have to have in order to be accepted or acceptable. Let them learn like anyone else learns through experience and not just these borrowed reason, you know, from from men that may get doled out here and there, but through real lived experience to fully exercise their mental capacity. So fantastic. Yeah, she she goes on to say, why are girls told that they resemble angels, but to sink them below women? Or that the gentle, innocent female is an object that comes nearer to the idea which we have formed of angels than any other, yet they are told at the same time that they are only angels when they're young and beautiful. Consequently, it's their person, not their virtues, that procure them this homage. Idle, empty words. What can such delusive flattery lead to but vanity and folly? (laughs) Yes. So this is all highly challenging for me as a Mormon woman. Mormon doctrine is steeped in the patriarchy and her arguments here are arguments that Mormon feminists have been making for decades. And what's probably the most difficult aspect of this for me is that she's saying these things nearly 230 years ago. That's a really long time to be having to make the same arguments. And I I would imagine for people not growing up in a church like the Mormon church and having a bit more freedom in how gender roles are conceptualized, the arguments of her contemporaries sound really outdated and kind of nutty, right? Oh, totally. (laughs) It's embarrassing, don't you think? Like with friends that aren't Mormon, you're like, oh. Yeah, like it's just kind of shocking to them, you know, because they have not Mm -hmm. heard that kind of stuff. But it mm-hmm. really all rings so true to my experience within the Mormon church and the way women are lauded and placed divinely up on that pedestal. Mm-hmm. My gut telling me if we were really equal, we would not be having to make such a big deal about how special we are, right? We would oh understand it on a different yeah. level through representation, through women leaders guiding us in matters of doctrine, 
you know, not just leading other women and children, but leading men as well. Mm-hmm. And that just is mm-hmm. not the case. So it goes as men try to tell us, you know, tell us women and then even women leaders telling us that no, in fact, that gut feeling you're having that there's something amiss, that something's not quite right. How about you ignore that and listen to my flattering words that say how important and special you are. It just rings so hollow to me at this point in my journey. And I I know for a fact, I have dear friends who desperately need to hear that message and cling to it for all it's worth. And I do understand that longing. Um, However, like Wollstonecraft says, for me, it will never reach my heart. Mm, Yes. Oh, man, I absolutely loved your line. You said something like, if we were really equal, then we wouldn't be having to make such a big deal about how special we are. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, that's... So true. I I feel like I've heard just so many men say like about their wives, something like, oh, you know who really rules the roost around here? It's my wife. (laughs) Or, you know, there's that line in, um, I think it's my big fat Greek wedding or something like, oh, the man is the head, but (laughs) the woman is the neck. (laughs) And so she can move the head in whatever direction she wants. Right. 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 All of these um, mental gymnastics that we have to put ourselves through mm-hmm. to, to make it work, right? Yep. Um, yeah, just so many church talks, too, saying how important and valuable women, you are amazing. And I, too, like you said, I'm just over it. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, it, you don't have to say it if it's true. At a, at a big company, you don't hear people saying, you know who's really in charge? It's the CEO. <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> right. Like, you someone, you just look at them like, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, right. If, if something's true, you don't have to say it. And so for me, I think what would be better than all of those comments that you said like that doesn't go to your heart. It might tickle the ear, but it does not go to the heart. And for me, what would be better than those things is instead of telling me how amazing I am, but then shutting me out of the meetings where you make decisions that impact my life, how about instead you say something like, you know what, this institution, whatever the institution is, whether it's the country or the church or a company or a family or whatever, like, to say, you know what, this institution struggles with sexism and we are not going to pretend that it doesn't. Mm-hmm. So instead of telling women what we think they want to hear, we are going to hold a forum or a meeting and we're going to hear from the women and brainstorm some measures to actually improve things in the way that the women think that they need to be improved. That's what I would prefer Yes, in place of all of those oh. um, Ear tickling compliments. Well, yeah, and I was just going to say it doesn't even tickle my ear. Right? It just, no, it does no. not. Uh, no, it doesn't do anything for me. No. Yeah. Well, it makes us mad yeah, now, yeah, right? right? Because after all these years, I mean, I did, I did buy it at first. It would make me uncomfortable, but mm-hmm. I would kind of think, well, but they're being nice. Right. So what's wrong with That's me? That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's right? always what's wrong with me. It's never what's wrong with right. this system. It's always like, oh, I must be broken somehow because this just isn't, I do feel uncomfortable around this. This doesn't make me feel good like they're saying it's supposed to. Right. That's right. very confusing. And, and if the, it, it is confusing. It's so confusing and hard to put your finger on it when the words themselves seem kind because they're compliments mm-hmm. and you're just like, ugh, why is this making me uncomfortable? Right. And now after having 
you know, these decades of analyzing it. And that's, you know, a large reason why I'm doing this project, right, is to become more educated on it so I can be a more informed thinker and, and see the, the systems and the practices for what they really are. Yeah. So, um, okay, I have another couple of thoughts on a similar topic to this. Um, Wollstonecraft, in addition to quoting Rousseau a lot, and she quotes that that one other guy, Dr. Gregory, she repeatedly quotes a man named Dr. Fordyce. And here's a quote from him where he's writing from the point of view of God. Of course he is. <laughs> of course he is. <laughs> so this is God speaking to men mm-hmm. about women. Right. Quote, Behold these smiling innocents, whom I have graced with my fairest gifts and committed to your protection. Behold them with love and respect. Treat them with tenderness and honor. They are timid and want to be defended. They are frail. Oh, do not take advantage of their weakness. Let their fears and blushes endear them. Can you find in your hearts to despoil the gentle, trusting creatures of their treasure or do anything to strip them of their native robe of virtue? <laughs> Cursed be the impious hand that would dare to violate the unblemished form of chastity, end quote. Mm. Okay, so there are some parts in there that are funny, mm-hmm. but um, there's a lot that we uh. could discuss about sexuality in that other part of that quote, too, and we won't do that, but... Um, I'm grateful he's having God tell men to not sexually abuse women. Mm-hmm. That's one positive yep, thing. It sure is. But it, that's good. And it's better than, you know, promoting right. sexual abuse. Right. But he does also, mixed in with that, he does promote a terribly damaging idea that a person's virtue can be taken away by someone mm-hmm. else. And that, you know, I don't have to tell you. Um as again, you're the expert on this, but it, I mean, it makes abuse victims feel like they're ruined and they have no virtue anymore right. if they do experience that. So um, that way of thinking is poison yeah. and it persists to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and again, we could talk at length about that, but we're not going to because um, we know actually from Wollstonecraft's embrace of sexual freedom that she would take issue with that too, mm-hmm. but she, yeah. she doesn't hear the part that Wollstonecraft kind of battles against in this particular quote is the idea that um, women need protecting because they are timid, they are frail, they are weak. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Wollstonecraft says, quote, weakness may excite tenderness and gratify the arrogant pride of man, but the lordly caresses the lordly caresses of a protector will not gratify a noble mind that pants for and deserves to be respected. Fondness is a poor substitute for friendship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. End of quote. You can feel fond and tender for, I mean, fondness and tenderness are lovely feelings, mm-hmm. but I feel like you know, Wollstonecraft talks a lot about how women are kept in the state of being what she says, uh, what she calls perpetual children. Right. Right. Yeah. And and so this husband, what is supposed to be a husband wife relationship, which she says should be more like a peer relationship mm-hmm. is like a parent to a child or even like a dog owner to a dog. <laughs> right. You can. Oh, my God. Right. Yeah. You you feel tenderness and fondness for Things that are beneath you, but right, um, right. Things that need your care, um, 
because they can't care for themselves, right? So you think of your little infant baby or a little puppy dog or, you know, something that cannot fend for itself. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Which is why I've always throughout my life loathed the word cute, right? I'm <laughs> yes. called cute oh, all the time. Yeah. Maybe because I'm short also, right, but right. men don't get called cute even when they're short. No. And I, yeah. it's just so diminutive and yeah, I can't stand it. Anyway, okay, here's another quote. And I want to bring this one up because this is a concrete example of kind of this, this issue that we're talking about in general. She gives a concrete example, and I think it still has current relevance. So I'll read this quote, and then we can talk about a modern application of it. Quote, I lament that women are systematically degraded by receiving the trivial attentions which men think it manly to pay to the sex when, in fact, they are insultingly supporting their own superiority. So ludicrous, in fact, do these ceremonies appear to me that I scarcely am able to govern my muscles. When I see a man start with eager and serious solicitude to lift a handkerchief or shut a door when the lady could have done it herself had she only moved a pace or two, end quote. <laughs> love it. I love it. Yep. <laughs> so great. That's so, so funny. Yeah. Um, I, I love how she says, I'm scarcely able to govern my muscles. I, I love it. I get it it's though. So like funny. I get twitchy when, you know, when we're <laughs> reading Rousseau, I'm like, Ugh. so I totally get what she's yeah. saying. Totally. Yeah, she's saying, right, that these big gallant gestures of masculine heroism are insulting. Mm -hmm. And when a woman feigns weakness and says, oh, thank you, like, it reinforces the stereotype that women are dependent because she's saying, I couldn't have done that myself. Right. Thank you for picking up that handkerchief or, right. you know, throwing your jacket on the puddle so I don't have to get my shoes wet. Right. Um and so like the the modern application of this, which is still, you know, in practice in our current society, which is kind of a vestige of these chivalrous, you know, grand displays is men opening doors for women. Right. Mm -hmm. And first of all, I want to say that I think opening the door for someone else is very considerate. And whenever someone does that for me, no matter who it is, I say thank you. Mm -hmm. I think it is a lovely, considerate gesture. And I teach my kids to always look around them and hold the door for anyone else who's approaching the door at the same time as they are. Um, so I think that is a great thing to do. It's very polite. But I want to share an anecdote specifically about men holding doors open for women in light of this Wollstonecraft quote. So one time I was approaching a door at the same time as a man. And I'm just going to say it, who it is. It was Steve Young. <laughs> the... Um, <laughs> The former 49ers quarterback, nice. he and his family lived near me at the time in Palo Alto. And I mean, everybody knows who Steve Young is, at least in Palo Alto, you know, in the Bay Area. Right. Mm -hmm. And so he didn't know who I was at the time, but I knew who he was. And we're approaching the door at the same time. And he was carrying um, one of those big, bulky baby carriers. Mm -hmm. Like he had a baby in the baby carrier in one arm. And then a giant diaper bag on the other arm. And he had at least one or two other children, like holding his hand, holding onto his belt loops. And he was just mightily encumbered by <laughs> baby and child stuff. Yeah, it's all so awkward. Yeah. It's so awkward. Yeah. You can still remember what that feels like. Mm -hmm. Well, at the time, like in that moment, I 
was walking up to the door. I was carrying nothing, like zero. Mm -hmm. I probably had my man's wallet in my pocket. (laughs) (laughs) And so, like, obviously, I went to get the door for him because his hands were full and he wouldn't let me. Uh He wouldn't. Like he he just scooted up to it like, no, 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 Mm -hmm. like starts putting his baby down and his stuff down. He wouldn't let me. And he insisted that he hold the door open for me. And I argued with him for a few seconds, but he would not let me open the door for him, Mm -hmm. which was so it was interesting. Mm -hmm. I I, want to say this, too. I. I was not in the least offended. What I knew, I knew in the moment, I thought, I mean, also I knew of Steve Young. We have lots of friends in common and he and his family. I mean, he's just the best guy. They have such a wonderful family. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew he was just a a great guy. So, I mean, in that moment, I wasn't offended. I wasn't angry at all. I thought, oh, he's been trained by his parents. This is one (laughs) way to show respect for women. That's right. Right. And I totally respected that. I thought it was lovely. I thought it was incredibly kind. And so I, I'm not saying this as a knock on Steve Young. No. I think he's just a great guy. Right. But he, you know, and, and also eventually, like he insisted for a while and I was gracious and I just walked through the door mm-hmm. eventually. But that incident has just returned to my mind many times over the years because in that moment, I wanted to be in a role of offering a kind service mm-hmm. to my fellow human being, right. right? Like, it feels nice to say, hey, let me do this for you. And like, I want to be the strong one in this moment that mm. can do something for you. And I wasn't allowed to right. because I was a woman. Yep. And um, I mean, we could bring up a whole other discussion on the variations of Mary Wollstonecraft's theme. Mm-hmm. In my time and place, one thing that's different that I was thinking about with this visual image of like literally this big, you know, football player right. who is also carrying a baby <laughs> and he's carrying like the symbols of domesticity, like dripping with sippy cups, right, and like right. you know, baby toys and stuff is um, I know that a conversation that comes up a lot in our culture right now is how mothers are still bearing the brunt of like all of the domestic work, even though they're in the workforce now too, and that they're kind of like single-handedly doing everything now. Mm-hmm. But so that's interesting and that's not good, right? <laughs> right, right. In that case, I just think of that that visual image of this man who, you know, this big, strong, masculine man also who is, you know, at least a breadwinner in his family. And he's contributing so much as a father and domestic work. And in my family, in my marriage, my husband is honestly the one who carries an oversized load. He's always been in my family the sole breadwinner. Mm. And he has always done a ton of housework. And he has always played with our kids and participated in their discipline. And he, it's adorable. He'll like go in and flop on the bed to chat with our, Mm -hmm. you know, our teenagers at the end of the day and ask how they're doing. He does everything. And so to still ask him to take on those archaic chivalrous roles of like, let me get that for (laughs) you, madam. And like, he's literally bearing all of this load and yet still doing those gestures. It just, 
it kind of has a modern twist mm-hmm. on it that sits wrong with me yeah. for that reason as well. Cause I think that's overly burdensome for a man. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I just don't like it, I guess, if either partner is doing a disproportionate amount of work. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. In my marriage, we both work our butts off. But if it's me or him carrying the bigger load, honestly, right now, I would say it's probably Eric. So anyway, that was my anecdote to illustrate the point. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I feel that so much. And I think especially, you know, making sure however it works out for each family is going to look different, but that disproportionate, if you feel it's disproportionate, right, that's something that is going to come up in the relationship in some way. If people are good with the way it is and it feels good for that moment in time, you know, then it's good. Mm. Does that make sense? You know, like I'll have a lot of couples be like, oh, it's totally fine right now. I'm taking extra load at home because my work hours are cut or, you know, whatever. But anyway, that, that story of Steve Young, yeah, it just, I have so many memories of getting into it with my dad about opening car doors or building doors or whatever for me and me being so bugged by it and just finally relenting because he wouldn't let it go. Um, you know, he insisted on quote unquote respecting me, but not really hearing my actual experience of not feeling respected by it. Um, Mm. and, and then once I got used to, you know, and I just let in, he gave up because just, it was pointless arguing with him about it. And I, I kind of got used to having him open the door for me and and him explaining to me why he was doing that. Um, I would just start to take notice, you know, just take note of men who would or wouldn't open doors for me and, you know, using that as a sign of respect and digesting it somehow that this was a marker of some kind. Um, Mm -hmm. and at a certain point after getting married and having kids and it, you know, again, it made zero sense for John to open doors for me because like you were saying about Eric, his hands were full of stuff just like mine were. And so it just, you know, became a moot point. It wasn't necessary, but I also remember probably seven or eight years ago, we were at church and it was what's called an area conference where they have one of the higher ranking leaders speaking to us. And he was recounting stories about his wife and how she would sit in the car and wait until he came to and open the door for her. And one time someone else was driving her and the guy got out of the car and went into the building and she waited and waited and waited until finally the guy figured out that he was supposed to go and open the door for her. Like open the car and she just sat in the car. Oh my gosh. And this was honest to goodness. This was lauded as the correct way to be both for men to go mm-hmm. and open the door and for women to wait until someone does it for you. And I, yeah. I I know. I remember walking out to the car afterwards. We had three kids at the time. And, um, you know, we're just loaded with stuff. And, and then hearing several other couples make jokes about, oh, now you have to open my door for me or I'm just going to sit here and wait for you until you do. You know, so we it seemed like we weren't alone in all of our eye rolling. But this idea was definitely being taught as a God approved prescription of what men are supposed to do and that women are supposed to wait for them to do it. And, you know, to quote Wollstonecraft, what nonsense and absurdity. Totally. Nonsense and absurdity. (laughs) I agree. I agree. Because it does imply that the man is strong and the woman is weak. And I 
and I don't like it. Mm-hmm. And that does have, it does carry weight in our psyches. I do think it does. It does. It, how can it Those not? little messages. Yeah. How, yeah, I agree. Wow. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion, Megan. That um, was just so rich and I learned so much talking to you. Um, but before we wrap up, I'm wondering if you can share just a, like maybe one takeaway that you'll remember from this book. Sure. Thank you. Um, overall, in gratitude for the strides that society has made 230 years ago in terms of what is possible for women when they're properly educated and allowed the freedom to pursue their own path. You know, that we live in a world where I can actively participate in helping men and women learn more about the emotional parts of themselves that have been shoved aside labeled as too sissy or too hysterical to be attended to. And I'd really watch that beautiful process unfold as couples are able to connect on a much deeper level. Um, you know, and to bring more love and connection in this world is truly an honor. And I, I couldn't do all of that without the hard work of our feminist foremothers, all the hard work that they've done as they tackled these subjects head on. And then, you know, in tackling this subject head on in my own house, there's several things. I know you said one, but I kind of have two. <laughs> there's yeah, go several ahead. things that this book has brought into sharp focus for me. And the first we touched on a bit with our artistic daughters who who love clothes and makeup and typically things associated with femininity and finding that balance to honor and and really appreciate all the parts of ourselves and those we love without feeling like we have to denigrate any of them based on the rules of the patriarchy. And then second, and possibly um, one that sits a little heavier for me, because I'm, I'm not entirely sure how to do this one, is how these conversations get transmitted to the men in our lives. And what message are they hearing as we talk through our frustrations, our hurt, our anger, and our pain? You know, my son made a comment last night at dinner or something to the effect that men are just jerks and basically the worst which I know it gave me an opportunity to do some serious course correction. Like you, you said, there's such a delicate balance to make explicit the structures that benefit one group of people above others. But I never want to send the message to my son or to my husband for that matter, that they're garbage people because they were born white males, right? They had nothing to do with that. But teaching my son that he's valuable, that he matters, that his needs are important feels like a fundamental lesson I want to impart to him as a mother. And at the same time, I want to help him develop a very clear understanding of the system and how he automatically benefits from that system. And most of all, understand that as we acknowledge the system and see it for what it is, he can strive to be an ally you know, to listen and support those working towards change. And then, you know, hopefully move into being an accomplice, someone who is actively working to make meaningful change to structures that are oppressive to any group of people. Be willing to stick your neck out when you see oppressive things happening. It really feels like a tightrope walk. And I'm in it for Mm -hmm. the long haul with all my kids. I feel like we still have a long ways to go. Yet I'm deeply grateful for how far we have come compared to 230 years ago. So true. Megan, thank you. I I share your gratitude. I share your frustration. 
And regarding your sweet son, I, th I think of what you said earlier in our conversation, which is we need to be hard on systems, soft on people. Um, I think all of those thoughts are so wise that we need to reform those structural inequities. But my hope and my goal, like you, is to do it in a way that doesn't hurt anyone um, and is empowering and positive for everyone involved. If I can share one more thought for my takeaway, um, I want to reference Olympe Gouge's Declaration on the Rights of Women and the Female Citizen again. Um, which Wollstonecraft was vindicating. Both de Gouge and Wollstonecraft were Enlightenment thinkers, like we talked about. And they employed the argument that men were using at the time that all men had natural rights. De Gouge and Wollstonecraft argued that those rights applied to women as well. Um, in our previous episode about de Gouge, when we were talking about natural rights, my reading partner very astutely pointed out that many thinkers, including Aristotle and Darwin, have argued that nat the natural order of things includes oppressive power structures and that those hierarchies or caste systems are appropriate. Mm. And um, some people believe that God ordained those hierarchies, and some believe that they evolved that way through natural selection. But either way, we shouldn't mess with them because they're quote-unquote natural, right? Mm -hmm. So in that discussion, Lindsay and I had a hard time coming up with an argument to contend with men who have that belief. And it's been on my mind since then, trying to puzzle through this, because those men, especially white men, historically have been in power at the top of the caste system. Mm -hmm. And they can just say when they hear people's arguments about wanting to participate in a more equitable system, those men can kind of just sit up there on the perch and say, uh, yeah, agree to disagree. We belong up here. Right. right? right. And they, they have the power to do that. They have the power to stay and to maintain the structure as it is and, and keep the status quo. And so how do women and people of color and anyone else who is marginalized or or um, kept out of of power and of participation? How do we combat that? And that question requires a, lo a long answer, of course. But I was just remembering that book and movie called Cloud Atlas. Um, it's a science fiction story where a group of characters keeps reincarnating in lots and lots of different situations throughout world history. And the, sh the story shows how through time, some of the people evolve and learn and grow and become more empathetic and more just. Um, but in the meantime, other characters just keep playing a role that keeps other people down, mm. no matter what you know, incarnation, no matter what situation in different time, a different country, a different um, environment, no matter what, they always just play that role. Um, one character played by Hugo Weaving keeps saying in every single scenario in which he's like born into, he keeps saying there is a natural order of things. And the one I remember most is when he's a Southern plantation owner who enslaves people. And he has several other incarnations, too, where, where he's always in the role of oppressor. And he keeps saying there's a natural order of things. So essentially, whatever caste you're born into, just be content in that role because that's the way it is. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so whatever you are, just do be the best untouchable that you can be. Right. <laughs> right. And just be, con be content uh, with it. Yeah. And so I share this because 
this story demonstrates a real life pattern. There will always be oppressors who say this is the natural order of things and we just shouldn't mess with it. And then there will always be rebels who can see unjust structures for what they are and challenge them. Olympe de Gouges was one of those and Mary Wollstonecraft was one of those. Sarah Grimke, whom we'll talk about next time, was also one of those. And so I want to end by sharing this quote from Wollstonecraft. She's talking about how women are essentially brainwashed to accept their own inferior status within this caste system of patriarchy. And she says, quote, thus degraded, her reason is employed rather to burnish than to snap her chains, end quote. So she's arguing that women need to employ their reason, which is the very first point you made today, Megan, right? They need to employ their reason to take a step back, to realize that they occupy a place in society's structure that is not just. And for heaven's sake, they need to make sure that they're not just, you know, playing a role in the system that actually burnishes or, or polishes their own chains. Right. So my takeaway I guess, is to think about what role we are playing within the society we're born into. Are we maintaining any power structures that limit other people and keep them down? If we're doing that, is it because we've been taught that that's just the natural order of things and it's just the way they are? Are we breaking free of the things that are holding us back? And if we are, are we also supporting other people as they break, break free of the limitations that have been imposed upon them? Um, and as they snap the chains, as Mary Wollstonecraft said. And I also want to say to all the supportive men in our lives, including your husband and your sweet son, Megan, and my husband and my sweet son, and any men listening, thank you for being allies for girls and women while we do this important work. And like you said, Megan, we have come so far, but it's not done yet. So thank you for your allyship. Um, anyway, thank you, Megan, so very, very much for being here today. You are such a brilliant thinker, and I miss having these long talks with you. Thank you again. Oh, thank you, Amy, so much for this opportunity. I've honestly always appreciated your thoughtfulness and sensitivity to feminist issues, and I'm just really grateful to have been a part of this. Thank you. Thanks, Megan. On our next episode, we will be leaving Europe and heading to the United States, where we will read a text written around the same time as Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Woman was written. But in fact, it was written one year earlier in 1791. This text is an essay called On the Equality of the Sexes by Judith Sargent Murray. Murray was an essay writer, a playwright, and a poet, and she was one of the first Americans to argue that women, like men, had the capability of intellectual accomplishment and should be able to achieve economic independence. This landmark essay on the equality of the sexes paved the way for new thoughts and ideas regarding women, especially in the United States. It's not a very long essay, and I found it easily online. I looked it up and found it on the website nationalhumanitycenter.org. So give it a read and maybe even look up the incredible Judas Sargent Murray and then join us for the discussion next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Patriarchy.